Volume One, Chapter Eighteenth of the Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Eighteenth. As when a griffin through the wilderness with winged course or hill and moory dale pursues the Aramaspian, who by stealth had from his wakeful custody purloined the guarded gold, so eagerly the fiend. Paradise Lost When their collation was ended, Sir Arthur resumed the account of the mysteries of the divining rod as a subject on which he had formerly conversed with Dousterswivel. My friend Mr. Oldbuck will now be prepared, Mr. Dousterswivel, to listen with more respect to the stories you have told us of the late discoveries in Germany by the brethren of your association. Ah, Sir Arthur, that was not a thing to speak to those gentlemen's, because it is want of credulity. What you call faith, that spoils the great enterprise. At least, however, let my daughter read the narrative she has taken down of the story of Martin Waldeck. Ah, that was very true story, but Miss Wardour, she is so sly and so witty, that she has made it just like one romance as well as Goethe or Weiland could have done it, by mine honest wart. To say the truth, Mr. Dousterswivel, answered Miss Wardour, the romantic predominated in the legend so much above the probable that it was impossible for a lover of fairyland like me to avoid lending a few touches to make it perfect in its kind. But here it is, and if you do not incline to leave this shade till the heat of the day is somewhat declined, and will have sympathy with my bad composition, perhaps Sir Arthur or Mr. Oldbuck will read it to us. Not I, said Sir Arthur. I was never fond of reading aloud. Nor I, said Oldbuck, for I forgot my spectacles. But here is Lovell, with sharp eyes and a good voice. For Mr. Blattergall, I know, never reads anything, lest he should be suspected of reading his sermons. The task was therefore imposed upon Lovell, who received, with some trepidation, as Miss Wardour delivered, with a little embarrassment, a paper containing the lines traced by that fair hand, the possession of which he coveted, as the highest blessing the earth could offer to him. But there was a necessity of suppressing his emotions, and after glancing over the manuscript, as if to become acquainted with the character, he collected himself, and read the company, the following tale. The Fortunes of Martin Waldeck The solitudes of the harsh forest in Germany, but especially the mountains called Blocksberg, or rather Brokenberg, are the chosen scenes for tales of witches, demons, and apparitions. Reader's Note The outline of this story is taken from the German, though the author is at present unable to say in which of the various collections of the popular legends in that language the original is to be found. End Reader's Note The occupation of the inhabitants, who are either miners or foresters, is of a kind that renders them peculiarly prone to superstition, and the natural phenomena which they witness in pursuit of their solitary or subterraneous profession, are often set down by them to the interference of goblins, or the power of magic. Among the various legends current in that wild country, there is a favorite one, 
which supposes the hearse to be haunted by a sort of tutelar demon, in the shape of a wild man, of huge stature, his head wreathed with oak leaves, and his middle cinctured with the same, bearing in his hand a pine torn up by the roots. It is certain that many persons profess to have seen such a form traversing, with huge strides, in a line parallel to their own course, the opposite ridge of a mountain, when divided from it by a narrow glen. And indeed the fact of the apparition is so generally admitted that modern skepticism has only found refuge by ascribing it to optical deception. Readers note, the shadow of the person who sees the phantom being reflected upon a cloud of mist, like the image of the magic lantern upon a white sheet, is supposed to have formed the apparition. End reader's note. In elder times, the intercourse of the demon with the inhabitants was more familiar, and according to the traditions of the harse, he was wont, with the caprice usually ascribed to these earth-born powers, to interfere with the affairs of mortals, sometimes for their weal, sometimes for their woe. But it was observed that even his gifts often turned out in the long run fatal to those on whom they were bestowed and it was no uncommon thing for the pastors, in their care of their flocks, to compose long sermons, the burden whereof was a warning against having any intercourse, direct or indirect, with the harsh demon. The fortunes of Martin Waldeck have been often quoted by the aged to their giddy children, when they were heard to scoff at a danger which appeared visionary. A travelling capuchin, had possessed himself of the pulpit of the thatched church at a little hamlet called Morganbrot, lying in the Harst district, from which he declaimed against the wickedness of the inhabitants, their communication with fiends, witches, and fairies, and, in particular, with the woodland goblin of the Harst. The doctrines of Luther had already begun to spread among the peasantry, for the incident is placed under the reign of Charles V., and they laughed to scorn the zeal with which the venerable man insisted upon his topic. At length, as his vehemence increased with opposition, so their opposition rose in proportion to his vehemence. The inhabitants did not like to hear an accustomed, quiet demon, who had inhabited the Brokenberg for so many ages, summarily confounded with Baal Peor, Ashtaroth, and Beelzebub himself and condemned without reprieve to the bottomless Tophet. The apprehensions that the spirit might avenge himself on them for listening to such an illiberal sentence, added to their national interest in his behalf. A travelling friar, they said, that is here to-day and away to-morrow, may say what he pleases, but it is we, the ancient and constant inhabitants of the country, that are left at the mercy of the insulted demon, and must, of course, pay for all. Under the irritation occasioned by these reflections, the peasants, from injurious language, betook themselves to stones, and having pebbled the priest pretty handsomely, they drove him out of the parish to preach against demons elsewhere. Three young men, who had been present and assisting on this occasion, were upon their return to the hut, where they carried on the laborious and mean occupation 
of preparing charcoal for the smelting furnaces. On the way, their conversation naturally turned upon the demon of the hearse, and the doctrine of the capuchin. Max and George Waldeck, the two elder brothers, although they allowed the language of the capuchin to have been indiscreet and worthy of censure, as presuming to determine upon the precise character and abode of the spirit, yet contended it was dangerous, in the highest degree, to accept of his gifts, or hold any communication with him. He was powerful, they allowed, but wayward and capricious, and those who had intercourse with him seldom came to a good end. Did he not give the brave knight, Eckbard of Robinwald, that famous black steed, by means of which he vanquished all the champions at the great tournament at Bremen? And did not the same steed afterwards precipitate itself with its rider into an abyss so steep and fearful, that neither horse nor man were ever seen more? Had he not given to Dame Gertrude Troden a curious spell for making butter come? And was she not burnt for a witch by the grand criminal judge of the electorate, because she availed herself of his gift? But these and many other instances which they quoted, of mischance and ill-luck, ultimately attending on the apparent benefits conferred by the harsh spirit, failed to make any impression upon Martin Waldeck, the youngest of the brothers. Martin was youthful, rash, and impetuous, excelling in all the exercises which distinguish a mountaineer, and brave and undaunted from his familiar intercourse with the dangers that attend them. He laughed at the timidity of his brothers. "'Tell me not of such folly,' he said. "'The demon is a good demon. He lives among us, as if he were a peasant like ourselves.' haunts the lonely crags and recesses of the mountains like a huntsman or goat-herd. And he who loves the harsh forest and its wild scenes cannot be indifferent to the fate of the hardy children of the soil. But if the demon were as malicious as you would make him, how should he derive power over mortals, who barely avail themselves of his gifts, without binding themselves to submit to his pleasure? When you carry your charcoal to the furnace— is not the money as good that is paid you by blaspheming blaze the old reprobate overseer as if you got it from the pastor himself it is not the goblin's gifts which can endanger you then but it is the use you shall make of them that you must account for and were the demon to appear to me at this moment and indicate to me a gold or silver mine i would begin to dig away even before his back returned and I would consider myself as under protection of a much greater than he, while I made a good use of the wealth he pointed out to me. To this the elder brother replied that wealth ill-won was seldom well spent, while Martin presumptuously declared that the possession of all the treasures of the hearts would not make the slightest alteration on his habits, morals, or character. His brother entreated Martin to talk less wildly upon the subject, and with some difficulty contrived to withdraw his attention, by calling it to the consideration of the approaching boar-chase. This talk brought them to their hut, a wretched wigwam, situated upon one side of a wild, narrow, and romantic dell, in the recesses of the Brokenburg. 
They release their sister from attending upon the operation of charring the wood, which requires constant attention, and divided among themselves the duty of watching it by night, according to their custom, one always waking while his brother slept. Max Waldeck, the eldest, watched during the first two hours of the night, and was considerably alarmed by observing, upon the opposite bank of the glen or valley, a huge fire surrounded by some figures, that appeared to wheel around it with antic gestures. Max at first bethought him of calling up his brothers, but recollecting the daring character of the youngest, and finding it impossible to wake the elder without also disturbing Martin, conceiving also what he saw to be an illusion of the demon, sent perhaps in consequence of the venturous expressions used by Martin on the preceding evening, he thought it best to betake himself to the safeguard of such prayers, as he could murmur over, and to watch in great terror and annoyance this strange and alarming apparition. After blazing for some time, the fire faded gradually away into darkness, and the rest of Max's watch was only disturbed by the remembrance of its terrors. George now occupied the place of Max, who had retired to rest. The phenomenon of a huge blazing fire upon the opposite bank of the glen again presented itself to the eye of the watchman. It was surrounded as before by figures, which, distinguished by their opaque forms, being between the spectator and the red glaring light, moved and fluctuated around, around it as if engaged in some mystical ceremony. George, though equally cautious, was of a bolder character than his elder brother. He resolved to examine more nearly the object of his wonder, and accordingly, after crossing the rivulet which divided the glen, he climbed up the opposite bank and approached within an arrow's flight of the fire, which blazed apparently with the same fury as when he first witnessed it. The appearance of the assistants who surrounded it resembled those phantoms which are seen in a troubled dream, and at once confirmed the idea he had entertained from the first, that they did not belong to the human world. Amongst these strange, unearthly forms, George Waldeck distinguished that of a giant overgrown, with hair, holding an uprooted fir in his hand, with which, from time to time, he seemed to stir the blazing fire, and having no other clothing than a wreath of oak leaves around his forehead and loins. George's heart sunk within him at recognizing the well-known apparition of the heart's demon, as he had been often described to him by the ancient shepherds and huntsmen, who had seen his form traversing the mountains. He turned and was about to fly, but upon second thoughts, blaming his own cowardice, he recited mentally the verse of the psalmist, All good angels, praise the Lord, which is in that country supposed powerful as an exorcism, and turned himself once more towards the place where he had seen the fire. But it was no longer visible. The pale moon alone enlightened the side of the valley, and when George, with trembling steps, a moist brow, and hair bristling upright under his collier's cap, came to the spot on which the fire had been so lately visible, marked as it was by a scathed oak tree, there appeared not on the heath the slightest vestiges of what he had seen. The moss and wild flowers were unscorched, 
and the branches of the oak-tree, which had so lately appeared enveloped in wreaths of flame and smoke, were moist with the dews of midnight. George returned to his hut with trembling steps, and, arguing like his elder brother, resolved to say nothing of what he had seen, lest he should awake in Martin that daring curiosity which he almost deemed to be allied with impiety. It was now Martin's turn to watch. The household cock had given his first summons, and the night was well nigh spent. Upon examining the state of the furnace in which the wood was deposited, in order to its being coked or charred, he was surprised to find that the fire had not been sufficiently maintained, for in his excursion and its consequences George had forgot the principal object of his watch. Martin's first thought was to call up the slumberers, but observing that both his brothers slept unwontedly deep and heavily, he respected their repose, and set himself to supply the furnace with fuel without requiring their aid. What he heaped upon it was apparently damp and unfit for the purpose, for the fire seemed rather to decay than revive. Martin next went to collect some boughs from a stack which had been carefully cut and dried for this purpose, but when he returned he found the fire totally extinguished. This was a serious evil, and threatened them with loss of their trade for more than one day. The vexed and mortified watchman set about to strike a light in order to rekindle the fire, but the tinder was moist, and his labor proved in this respect also ineffectual. He was now about to call up his brothers, for circumstances seemed to be pressing, when flashes of light glimmered, not only through the window, but through every crevice of the rudely built hut, and summoned him to behold the same apparition which had before alarmed the successive watches of his brethren. His first idea was that the Müller-Hausers, their rivals in trade, and with whom they had had many quarrels, might have encroached upon their bounds for the purpose of pirating their wood, and he resolved to awake his brothers and be revenged on them for their audacity. But a short reflection and observation on the gestures and manner of those who seemed to work in the fire induced him to dismiss this belief, and although rather sceptical in such matters, to conclude that what he saw was a supernatural phenomenon. But be they men or fiends, said the undaunted forester, that busy themselves yonder with such fantastical rites and gestures, I will go and demand a light to rekindle our furnace. He relinquished at the same time the idea of awaking his brethren, there was a belief that such adventures as he was about to undertake were accessible only to one person at a time. He feared also that his brothers, in their scrupulous timidity, might interfere to prevent his pursuing the investigation he had resolved to commence, and therefore, snatching his boar-spear from the wall, the undaunted Martin Waldeck set forth on the adventure alone. With the same success as the brother George, but with courage far superior, Martin crossed the brook, ascended the hill, and approached so near the ghostly assembly that he could recognize in the presiding figure the attributes of the heart's demon. A cold shuddering assailed him for the first time in his life, but the recollection 
that he had at a distance dared and even courted the intercourse which was now about to take place confirmed his staggering courage and pride supplying what he wanted in resolution he advanced with tolerable firmness towards the fire the figures which surrounded it appearing still more wild fantastical and supernatural the more near he approached to the assembly he was received with a loud shout of discordant and unnatural laughter which to his stunned ears seemed more alarming than a combination of the most dismal and melancholy sounds that could be imagined who art thou said the giant compressing his savage and exaggerated features into a sort of forced gravity while they were occasionally agitated by the convulsion of the laughter which he seemed to suppress martin waldeck the forester answered the hardy youth and who are you the king of the waste and of the mine answered the spectre and why hast thou dared to encroach on my mysteries i came in search of light to rekindle my fire answered martin heartily and then resolutely asked in his return what mysteries are those that you celebrate here we celebrate answered the complacent demon the wedding of hermes with the black dragon but take thy fire that thou camest to seek and be gone no mortal may look upon us and live the peasant struck his spear-point into a large piece of blazing wood which he heaved up with some difficulty and then turned round to regain his hut the shouts of laughter being renewed behind him with treble violence and ringing far down the narrow valley when martin returned to the hut his first care however much astonished with what he had seen was to dispose the kindled coal among the fuel so as might best light the fire of his furnace but after many efforts and all exertions of bellows and fire-prong the coal he had brought from the demon's fire became totally extinct without kindling any of the others he turned about and observed the fire still blazing on the hill although those who had been busied around it had disappeared as he conceived the spectre had been jesting with him he gave way to the natural hardihood of his temper and determining to see the adventure to an end resumed the road to the fire from which unopposed by the demon he brought off in the same manner a blazing piece of charcoal but still without being able to succeed in lighting his fire impunity having increased his rashness he resolved upon a third experiment and was as successful as before in reaching the fire but when he had again appropriated a piece of burning coal and had turned it apart he heard the harsh and supernatural voice which had before accosted him pronounce these words dare not return hither a fourth time the attempt to kindle the fire with this last coal having proved as ineffectual as on the former occasions martin relinquished the hopeless attempt and flung himself on his bed of leaves resolving to delay till the next morning the communication of his supernatural adventure to his brothers he was awakened from a heavy sleep into which he had sunk from fatigue of body and agitation of mind by loud exclamations of surprise and joy his brothers astonished at finding the fire extinguished when they awoke had proceeded to arrange the fuel in order to renew it when they found in the ashes 
three huge metallic masses, which their skill, for most of the peasants in the hearts are practical mineralogists, immediately ascertained to be pure gold. It was some damp upon their joyful congratulations when they learned from Martin the mode in which he had obtained this treasure, to which their own experience of the nocturnal vision induced them to give full credit. But they were unable to resist the temptation of sharing in their brother's wealth. Taking now upon him as head of the house, Martin Waldeck bought lands and forests, built a castle, obtained a patent of nobility, and, greatly to the indignation of the ancient aristocracy of the neighborhood, was invested with all the privileges of a man of family. His courage in public war, as well as in private feuds, together with the number of retainers whom he kept in pay, sustained him for some time against the odium which was excited by his sudden elevation and the arrogance of his pretensions. And now it was seen in the instance of Martin Waldeck, as it has been in that of many others, how little morals can foresee the effect of sudden prosperity on their own disposition. The evil propensities in his nature, which poverty had checked and repressed, ripened and bore their unhallowed fruit under the influence of temptation and the means of indulgence. As deep calls unto deep, one bad passion awakened another. The fiend of avarice invoked that of pride, and pride was to be supported by cruelty and oppression. Waldeck's character, always bold and daring, but rendered harsh and assuming by prosperity, soon made him odious, not to the nobles only, but likewise to the lower ranks, who saw, with double dislike, the oppressive rights of the feudal nobility of the empire so remorselessly exercised by one who had risen from the very dregs of the people. His adventure, although carefully concealed, began likewise to be whispered abroad, and the clergy, already stigmatized as a wizard and accomplice of fiends, the wretch who, having acquired so huge a treasure in so strange a manner, had not sought to sanctify it by dedicating a considerable portion to the use of the church. Surrounded by enemies, public and private, tormented by a thousand feuds, and threatened by the church with excommunication, Martin Waldeck, or, as we must now call him, the Baron von Waldeck, often regretted bitterly the labors and sports of his unenvied poverty. But his courage failed him, not under all these difficulties, and seemed rather to augment in proportion to the danger which darkened around him, until an accident precipitated his fall. A proclamation by the reigning Duke of Brunswick had invited to a solemn tournament all German nobles of free and honorable descent, and Martin Waldeck, splendidly armed, accompanied by his two brothers, and a gallantly equipped retinue, had the arrogance to appear among the chivalry of the province, and demand permission to enter the lists. This was considered as filling up the measure of his presumption. A thousand voices exclaimed, We will have no cinder-sifter mingle in our games of chivalry. Irritated to frenzy, Martin drew his sword and hewed down the herald, who, in compliance with the general outcry, opposed his entry into the lists. A hundred swords were unsheathed 
to avenge what was in those days regarded as a crime only inferior to sacrilege or regicide. Waldeck, after defending himself like a lion, was seized, tried on the spot by the judges of the lists, and condemned, as the appropriate punishment for breaking the peace of his sovereign, and violating the sacred person of a herald at arms, to have his right hand struck from his body, to be ignominiously deprived of the honour of nobility, of which he was unworthy, and to be expelled from the city. When he had been stripped of his arms, and sustained the mutilation imposed by this severe sentence, the unhappy victim of ambition was abandoned to the rabble, who followed him with threats and outcries, leveled alternately against the necromancer and oppressor, which at length ended in violence. His brothers, for his retinue, were fled and dispersed, at length succeeded in rescuing him from the hands of the populace, when satiated with cruelty, they had left him half-dead through loss of blood, and through the outrages he had sustained. They were not permitted, such was the ingenious cruelty of their enemies, to make use of any other means of removing him, excepting such a collier's cart as they had themselves formerly used, in which they deposited their brother on a truss of straw, scarcely expecting to reach any place of shelter, ere death should release him from his misery. When the Waldecks, journeying in this miserable manner, had approached the verge of their native country, in a hollow way, between two mountains, they perceived a figure advancing towards them, which at first sight seemed to be an aged man. But as he approached, his limbs and stature increased, the cloak fell from his shoulders, his pilgrim staff was changed into an uprooted pine-tree, and the gigantic figure of the heart's demon passed before them in his terrors. When he came opposite to the cart, which contained the miserable Waldeck, his huge features dilated into a grin of unutterable contempt and malignity. As he asked the sufferer, "'How like you the fire my coals have kindled?' The power of motion which terror suspended in his two brothers seemed to be restored to Martin by the energy of his courage. He raised himself on the cart, bent his brows, and, clenching his fist, shook it at the spectre with a ghastly look of hate and defiance. The goblin vanished with his usual tremendous and explosive laugh, and left Waldeck exhausted with this effort of expiring nature. The terrified brethren turned their vehicle toward the towers of a convent, which arose in a wood of pine-trees beside the road. They were charitably received by a barefooted and long-bearded capuchin, and Martin survived only to complete the first confession he had made since the day of his sudden prosperity, and to receive absolution from the very priest, whom, precisely on that day three years, he had assisted to pelt out of the hamlet of Morganbrot. The three years of precarious prosperity were supposed to have a mysterious correspondence with the number of his visits to the spectral fire upon the hill. The body of Martin Waldeck was interred in the convent where he expired, in which his brothers, having assumed the habit of the order, lived and died in the performance of acts of charity and devotion. His lands, to which no one asserted any claim, 
lay waste until they were reassumed by the emperor as a lapsed fief and the ruins of the castle which waldeck had called by his own name are still shunned by the miner and forester as haunted by evil spirits thus were the miseries attendant upon wealth hastily attained and ill-employed exemplified in the fortunes of martin waldeck End chapter 18th